Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. This week on Babel, John talked with Azadeh Moavani about her new book, Guest House for Young Widows, and how Azadeh researched her book. Then Natasha McKinley and I discussed the de-radicalization process. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Azadeh Moavani is a writer and journalist who serves as the Gender Project Director at the International Crisis Group. She has had a long career in journalism, spending more than 20 years reporting from throughout the Middle East. Her work has appeared in The Guardian, The New York Times, Foreign Policy, and The London Review of Books. She is the author, most recently, of Guest House for Young Widows, which tells the story of 13 women who joined the Islamic State. Azadeh, welcome to Babel. Thanks so much for having me. You wrote a book about what I think a lot of people would think is a, an unusual topic. You spoke to women who joined the Islamic State. How did that happen? It is a good question because it is, it is indeed a, a dark and, and was a treacherous topic to work on. I think two things drew me to, to reporting this and, and writing the book. One, I was, I was living in the UK at the time that I started marching across the Middle East. I was living in London, teaching in London. And lots of young people from, from London, from you know, communities like the one I was teaching in, were, were getting up, packing up to go and join the Islamic State. And I thought it was extraordinary. But I was teaching journalism, and I'm, of course, an old journalist. And the media coverage of, of what was happening, especially to young women who were being recruited by these very sophisticated, very canny ISIS recruiters, you know, with the propaganda and the outreach that we knew was so sort of savvy and bespoke, um, the media coverage of them really disturbed and upset me because many of these were young girls. They were teenagers. They were essentially being uh, kind of recruited to be child brides or to be sexually exploited. But all the language about them in the papers was jihadi brides going to be harlots for the caliphate. You know, the notion that they were being groomed, that they were being kind of recruited for sexual exploitation didn't enter the debate. Even sort of feminists who I would have imagined would have been conscious of that didn't. So uh, I thought there was a real racial element. You know, i grew up as an Iranian Muslim girl in the U.S., I felt sort of a responsibility to kind of tell a different story about especially the young girls who were being recruited. And the second thing was as an old Middle East hand, to me, it was really evident that the march of women from across the region to join this jihadist group was unprecedented. To me, it was really obvious that that lay in the kind of failures and the experience of the Arab Spring uprisings. But again, I didn't see that in the coverage. The coverage seemed to be about religion as a, as a toxic ideology and a bad brand of Islam. So I guess I felt both personally and professionally really compelled to kind of theorize ISIS differently, and especially these women who had been drawn to it. That's how it started. As you reported, as you met a lot of these women and their families, how did your ideas change? I found as I started spending time with the women that, that I was able to, to track down, um, uh, I, I was struck by how many of them um, had simply been caught up in a war. They hadn't joined voluntarily. Some of them hadn't even been sort of seduced by any ideology. There were three girls, um, young women who are characters in my book who had just, you know, Raqqa was their hometown and, and they were so relatable. It was just astonishing spending time with them. I mean, uh, I, 
I felt like I had so much in common with them. You know, one of them was studying marketing. The other one was studying English literature. They read novels. They were on Facebook. And this militant group sort of showed up in their hometown and was like a mafia and it was brutal. And some of their families started collaborating. And so they did too. And I realized the kind of sheer diversity of, of women's experiences. And that's when I sort of wanted to be able to make my book very character driven and sort of write about all these girls, a girl who was studying marketing and was so, she, you know, she spoke English and she wanted to work in tourism. And she ended up being the sort of meet and greet woman who would go to the border and bring these women from Europe into Morocco into the Islamic state. You know, it was those kind of stories of women that we would have considered quite relatable, like you know, young women who, who we would know um, and sort of make this seemingly terrible, grotesque decision somehow understandable given, you know, this precarious context in Syria. It strikes me that you came to this and you were able to build remarkable trust with the women you spoke to in your book. And you would think from the outside, from what people have read about ISIS, that you would be the last person that people would trust. You're American. You, as you said, you have an Iranian background. There is so much hostility within the Islamic State to Shia Islam. How were you able to overcome it? Was there an initial resistance that you were able to overcome? Were people actually not that resistant to start with anyway? Do we read that wrong? Um, no, no, that's exactly the right read. It was, it was tremendously, with, with most of the women that I ended up you know, speaking to and writing about, for the most part, it was tremendously challenging. It involved multiple trips, multiple time. You know, I spent a lot of time in Tunisia. I went again and again. I had to build a lot of trust with sort of intermediaries because in the end, getting to these women required, you know, winning the trust of, of people that they trusted that would get me to them. To be frank, I didn't sort of immediately disclose that I was Iranian or Shia um, until with many, I got to a point where I felt safe enough to be able to say that. And, and I think with, you know, a good many, I did. But from the outset, uh, I didn't. What was important was that I sort of came to their stories uh, with a kind of shared cultural and religious and kind of historical understanding. I didn't sort of start with the trauma or I didn't start with the salacious question. You know, I very often started asking about the past with a Tunisian young woman, you know, what happened to your parents under, you know, the dictatorship of Ben Ali? Were your parents um, harassed? Were they in prison? You know, with a young woman from Hama, who was a very fierce ISIS loyalist, you know, I asked her about her family and how they had experienced uh, Hafez al-Assad's siege of that city and what happened to her father. I think it was very disarming to start in the past and to make really clear to them that we kind of shared a literacy about how we had arrived at the moment that we found ourselves in. Um, I, I think that was the most important thing because otherwise I think that just the kind of reactive hostility, the suspicion of someone who comes in who has kind of rigid ideas about what they've experienced, you know, is only probing and poking at, at trauma or, you know, questions like sex slaves. I knew that wouldn't get me to the kind of relationship I needed. Do you think that the fact that, that these women had in many ways been traumatized by a very patriarchal group made them more willing to trust another woman? Do you think that maybe the reason they got into this is because they trusted other women or that's part of how they navigated it was by trusting other women? Some yes uh, and some no. I think, you know, I think many were, were led by, by men and were coerced by boyfriends or, or lovers or, or family members, brothers who had a kind of overbearing kind of role in their lives. 
very young women who were vulnerable or women who had mental health problems. Um, I think there were some who were definitely, the Europeans, I think, were often recruited by women. Definitely. Those recruiting networks were very female. The very skilled propagandists online were female. I'm actually in the Arab world, too you know, very accomplished in what they were trying to do. You know, Saudi women who were sort of known as poetesses, jihadi poetesses and these sorts of things. But also because I was a woman and, and I speak some Arabic, you know, I could ask those intimate questions about, did your husband make you use birth control? Or what was it like having to marry, you know, a man, you know, a sort of fighter husband consecutively? And I think being able to do that kind of sharing this religious cultural background, being able to do it and often when the, the language that they spoke made talking about that also a lot easier. In your experience, did their trauma make them more suspicious and less trusting or did it make them more vulnerable and more trusting when you were trying to explore some of these issues? Yeah, that's a subtle, really good question. Um, I think some were... And some of them, you know, some of them I had continuous relationships in periods where they were still basically stuck in this situation. There was one woman, for example, that I had a sort of two and a half year relationship with over WhatsApp. And once she escaped ISIS, uh, she didn't make it back to Germany where she was from. She was living in this sort of town village in the north of Syria, kind of semi-captive by the Free Syrian Army. So her ordeal really wasn't over and she was very vulnerable. I became someone that she you know, ask medical questions for. And, and I was very aware that she was quite vulnerable. And it was really hard navigating that professionally, deciding how much to probe, knowing that I had kind of established this relationship with her where I was almost indispensable because she was, you know, essentially still being human trafficked. Some were traumatized, I think, in a way that they had just shut down completely. Uh, and, and it was quite hard uh, to, to talk at all. Some were very sort of cunning and, and knew what to say. And, you know, even though they were traumatized, I felt like they were still very able to spin a story. And then some, I think, still had that way of coping with trauma, which is to just process and, and want to talk and, and to sort of talk about, you know, what had led them to leave Tunisia, for example, or what had happened in their lives, you know, the state abuse or, or whatever, you know torture that, you know, one young woman, you know, in Tunisia had experienced. So I think there was also that too. And that was always really like a great outcome when it felt like talking helped the young woman. And, and I felt like, you know, I wasn't endangering her by having the conversation. Well, is also the issue of, the, of these women as mothers. And you have a lot of not only women who are mothers, but women who are mothers of stateless children. Their f fathers are dead. They may have been from any number of countries. How do you think Western governments should unpack the issue of the potential of radical mothers raising a new generation of jihadis, perhaps in the middle of Europe? Do you think there's a way to deal with that issue, to handle that issue, to, to understand that issue? Mm. Well, a lot of governments in Europe are actually just trying to bring back the children and leave the mothers there. That, that seems to definitely be a very popular kind of policy approach here, which we see, yeah, you know, certainly in the UK, which has stripped you know, most of, of its women, for example, um, in these camps from their British citizenship. So I think trying to bring only the kids back is, is one solution for a lot of governments. Although you know, that kind of family separation may not be in the best interest of the child, it's quite tricky. 
Um, but I think a lot of times still, when mother and child are brought back, the mother either serves times in prison or often the child is taken away and left with other family members. And I guess you could say, well, that family produced that mother. So, you know, how trustworthy can they be? Or they go into foster care, though. So this idea that they're sort of brought back as this kind of contained unit and that kind of process could go on usually doesn't happen. And if they come and the child is left in the family, um, there's such a long period of separation or such close oversight by social care and social workers that I think the eye on them is very sharp. Let me ask a strange question, which I'm sure you have dealt with a lot because of nature of your reporting. But I think most people don't appreciate when they're looking at the Islamic State from afar. And that is, it wasn't clear that all these women could speak the same language. They sometimes couldn't speak the same language as their husbands. A lot of them don't speak Arabic. A lot of them don't speak English. How did these groups work when there wasn't a language that unified them, that in many cases, people within the group would need translators to operate within the group? Yeah, it's a really good question because it gets to one of the, I think, most almost ironic aspects of the Islamic State. And I don't mean to say that lightly, but because it was sort of this utopian project and it promised Muslims from across the world that it would erase the boundaries of race and, you know, nationality and everyone would be equal. And, you know, people from all over the world streamed there because they were expecting that. And they thought that there was this kind of utopian, great kind of cosmopolitan, you know, state waiting for them. Uh, but in practice, it just ended up descending into uh, power clicks. You know, the Arabs obviously had the upper hand over everyone because they could navigate the Syrian and Iraqi terrain. They could get the best houses, the best villas, the best cars. Uh, and that created a lot of resentment from the Europeans. Uh, the Chechens and, and, the, and the Kazakhs and people from Central Asian countries were known as good fighters and often they came with that. So they sort of had that cachet. But so there was a lot of kind of backbiting and gossip, you know, between these cliques based around language uh, and nationality. But so essentially, I think a lot of the Europeans especially were kind of sent as cannon fodder to the front because they weren't skilled in combat and, and they were just kind of expendable. Uh, and their women kind of sat out. I mean, they didn't really join state building enterprise, whereas women from Tunisia, Morocco, Saudi Arabia, you know, women from the Arab world were really able to participate in some of the, the media arms, the administrative, they, they taught, you know, initiation classes that women went upon arrival, they taught Arabic. So roles were very much variant on whether you could speak one of the local languages. And I think if you didn't, you ended up, you know, being kind of quite marginal to this kind of great project that, you know, had promised to erase borders. One of the themes that comes through your book is lies women ended up in this situation because there was something that made them unhappy. Do you see, based on, on what you know about the women, their situations, what their current conditions are, do you think any of these women can find happiness now going forward? Is there, is there a way for them to get to a good place given what they've done and what they've seen? I think many of them, you know, if they're able to get back home, you know, I'm thinking of the Tunisian women because Tunisia sent a pretty big cohort of women to ISIS, you know, 1,500 women by some accounts, at least, you know, several hundred, but by the lowest. You know, I think they went there feeling that Tunisia and the revolution there, or the Arab Spring Revolution there, had not achieved any of its aims, that they didn't reach political inclusion the way that they imagined, that there was still corruption. You know, I think they will, if they can, if they can ever get back, and some have gotten back, you know, I think they will reach kind of quiet resignation. You know, I mean, they're, 
the Arab world is, you know, or that term, but, you know, countries like Tunisia, which is better off than, of course, its neighbor Libya, have not really politically liberalized or, you know, economically are still very vulnerable. So I think for women who left because they felt like life was really, really hard for them as a hijabi in Tunisia, for example, I think they will go back with a radically different perspective of what mistreatment is by a state. And that might be a kind of grim metric, but I think that they will consider themselves very lucky and very fortunate, you know, just to be safe again, you know, in a, in a country where they can walk down the street and, you know, there won't be bombs dropped on their head and, and there won't be crucifixions. So in a way, I think they can, if they can get back. Azadeh Mouavni, author of Guest House for Young Widows. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks. It was great to talk to you. Next up, Natasha McKinley and I discuss de-radicalization and the systems different countries have put in place. So this is the first week that we haven't had John with us for the conversation after the interview. But in her interview with John, Azadeh talked about how there isn't just one type of woman who've joined ISIS. What does that mean for the de-radicalization process? I think that there is increasingly a realization that one size fits all is not really effective for de-radicalization programs. The drivers of radicalization are political, economic, ideological, and personal. So understanding each person's background is really essential. In the case of these women, you have minors who may have had troubled childhoods or experienced trauma, but you may also have Syrian women who were living through the war on the other side, you have women who fully know, knew what they were doing, and they continue to espouse particularly virulent ideologies, even from the camp. Um, so I think, obviously, treating all women and men, for that matter, with the same brushstroke isn't really effective. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that it is really important to think about sort of just how varied these experiences are. And Natasha, I agree with you that in some ways it's not so different to the reasons that men join a group like ISIS as well. And I think it's a really important point that Azadeh raised about the idea that some of these women should really be seen as, as victims of human trafficking, of sex trafficking. And I think that that's a really important part of this, of this debate. But at the same time, we shouldn't just assume that no women have agency here and, and strip them of their agency. And I think clearly there are some who should be considered a terrorist. I mean, who, or who joined for ideological reasons and actively bought into that ideology and acted upon it. And some of them certainly have, are responsible for violent acts which should be seen as crimes. And, and so a de-radicalization process for them is going to be very, very different. It's an enormous problem. And I think each individual case needs to be treated differently, but obviously that requires a huge amount of resources. And so far, unfortunately, very few governments around the world have been willing to even consider making that kind of investment in to be able to assess on a case-by-case basis why these women join their circumstances, their motivations. Will, you just mentioned the need to treat everyone differently on a case-by-case basis. What does that look like for countries that are accepting women back? And what should that look like for countries that are accepting women back? Well, again, I I think it is important to differentiate and to think that some of these people have suffered, I mean, many of them have suffered immense trauma. They need psychological support. They need 
to be really put in a safe environment to be able to start rebuilding their lives. And I think these are people who have not been directly involved in the violence and whatnot. But then I think that there are others who could well prove to be a threat to the governments or to the countries that they're turning to. And so it does make sense to place them under far greater restrictions for them to be imprisoned. I mean, I think I, I found a statistic, actually, that women typically get three times shorter sentences than men who are returning from radical groups. And clearly there, there are some, some women who, who should suffer the same consequences as, as men who've joined these, these groups. And so maybe they do need longer sentences. Um, but I think that with all de-radicalization processes, locking people up is, is never going to be a true solution. It needs to be complemented by educational programs, social programs, for a de-radicalization process to stand any chance of succeeding. Are there any countries that have had a successful de-radicalization process? Really writ large, and this is not focused on de-radicalization for women, but I think Algeria has been kind of remarkably successful. In the 1990s, it suffered from um, a huge problem of extremism that led to the civil war. And I think the government there realized that a military strategy was not sufficient and that it needed to combine it with a general amnesty and to incentives to really support the de-radicalization process. The reason why I think it's been relatively successful is if you look at the number of people we know of who left Algeria to go and join ISIS, it was 170. Whereas in neighboring Tunisia, which has a, a quarter of Algeria's population, roughly, more than 3,000 people left. And I mean, there are a variety of reasons for that. And, and I'm sure some of the ways in which Algeria has done it are heavy handed and perhaps may not be useful in, in, in the longer term. But at least in terms of the, the ISIS threat, it seems that Algeria has been a, a success uh, story in North Africa, at least. I think that the data isn't totally clear on this because I think different programs have different definitions of success as well. Some say that if the individual is not engaged in violent behavior or breaking any laws, then it's a success. But other programs don't really consider themselves successful unless the person has moderated their views completely and completely disengaged from any kind of extremist material or communities. So I think it's difficult to say, but there have been claimed successes also in programs in Saudi Arabia and in Denmark, which focus more on prevention and, and returning fighters. But I think that these programs do share some characteristics. I'm not sure about Algeria, but those programs tend to be assistance with jobs and housing, so economic factors, social factors, and then also working with another de-radicalized person who may better understand what the person is growing through. I think in other places, they sort of confront them with a state-sanctioned cleric, which just isn't as credible for a lot of these people. But I think, as I mean, as I mentioned, there are many reasons why people decide to leave home and participate in such a project. And I think a lot of governments haven't really tackled some of these larger systemic, political and economic and even social issues. So I think that means putting your money where your mouth is. And I'm not saying that you need to promise a car and a wife to people on you know successful completion of the de-radicalization program like they do in Saudi Arabia sometimes. But you do need to invest in rehabilitation of some sort. So if someone spends several years in prison, but there's no or little effort to understand what got them there, what they're dealing with in prison and how they're going to survive on the outside, then you can predict that there's going to be bad outcomes. 
Natasha, you mentioned the need to put your money where your mouth is. What are some cases of countries that haven't done that and have not had the same successes in their de-radicalization processes? I think it's a, sort of a multifaceted problem. I think there's some countries that haven't really engaged in rehabilitation in the prison system at large, and that includes the United States. And for that reason, I think you see a lot of people, their issues get exacerbated in prison. They become more traumatized by the time they leave. They're more economically and socially disenfranchised. And so it just increases the, the problems that they have. In other countries in Europe, a lot of people are radicalized in prison. That's a problem in the Middle East and in the West, actually, uh, and in places in Southeast Asia. In places like France, you've seen processes where they have tried to replace an extremist ideology with a very secular one, and these weren't very successful. Uh, there's a couple of problems with that. It focuses solely on ideology as a driver, whereas I mentioned that there's probably a lot of drivers. And it also further marginalizes someone who might want to continue to be an observant Muslim or who comes from a community made up of observant Muslims. And so... I think that in not confronting some of those personal, psychological, political, economic drivers, you could make a program fall flat. But I think that this is really hard and it's not a quick fix. And you might have popular government figures or politicians making anti-Islamic remarks and, you know, working at odds with actually a, a really great de-radicalization program. But those remarks can make those communities continue to feel alienated. And it makes the de-radicalization process seem hypocritical. Then is there a right path that we should be taking, learning from the failures and learning from the successes? What approach should the U.S. be doing? I think it's twofold for the United States. There are Americans that went to Syria, but relatively few, comparatively speaking, with, with other countries, both in the region and uh, in Europe. But I think that the U.S. and their allies need to find a better approach, as Will mentioned, for these families, especially the children, many of whom are stateless and really have no future or uh, even a right to education. Their situation is going to get dramatically worse if it hasn't already. And there needs to be more work done locally within Syria in places like Deir ez-Zor, the province in, in Syria, which holds most of the oil. This particular locale actually receives the least amount of electricity. And these communities, they've been burned too often during this conflict under multiple handovers from the regime to ISIS to the Syrian Democratic Forces and back again. And I think that their strategy isn't going to be simply about ideology with regards to ISIS. It's also about survival. So the U.S. strategy needs to be different. And I think most people know that, but infrastructure, livelihoods, opportunities continue to be really dismal in Northeast Syria, especially in Deir ez-Zor. And these communities really need to be protected and know that they won't be abandoned. Otherwise, they're just going to continue to, to keep their options open. On the American side, I think more generally it can be acknowledged that we have a long way to go in gaining the trust of minority communities or combating radicalization of any ideology. And just asking people to spy on their neighbors and report on them isn't really a strategy. I think all citizens need to feel like they have a stake in their country. 
in predominantly Muslim countries, those who seek to join a group like ISIS also need to feel like they have a stake in their government and feel supported by that government. And clearly that isn't happening even in places like Tunisia that experienced an Arab Spring, since there are so many Tunisian fighters that relocated to Syria. But that's not an easy fix, and I acknowledge that. I mean, people need to feel like they have a purpose in life. And if they don't, I think groups like ISIS or even far-right groups are going to continue to be able to recruit followers. But that's very difficult. It includes better psychological support and counseling and education targeted at critical thinking uh, and real efforts towards political and economic inclusion. And a prison system that seeks to rehabilitate people rather than exacerbate some of the economic and psychological issues that got them there in the first place. But I think keeping an eye on people, as Azadeh mentions, is only a very small part of that. Thank you both for joining me. We don't have M. Meze next week, but tune back in the week after that for another episode of Babel. Thanks for listening to Babel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSIS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast.